Hi, my name is Ash Milton. I'm a managing editor here at Palladium Magazine. This is uh, the Palladium Podcast, episode number 24. And I'm here with Jason Crawford, and we're going to be talking about progress today. Uh, Jason focuses on the topic of progress studies. Uh, and we'll be going into, you know, what is progress? We're going to be looking at the concept of progress studies and uh, linking into our Palladium house concept, so to speak, of governance futurism. And uh, we'll see the discussion takes us. So, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. Why don't you start, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and how you got interested in this topic. Yes, certainly. So I am the author of a blog called uh, The Roots of Progress. Uh, where I write about mainly the history of technology and industry, but more broadly, the story of human progress and its relevance to today's world and, and of course, the future. Um, before this, I was uh, for a long time in the tech world, software, um, mostly Silicon Valley. I, uh, I had an 18 years uh, career in software engineering. I was an engineering manager, also a startup founder. I've been in the San Francisco Bay Area for the last 10 years where I, I co-founded two startups and then in the last uh, three years or so, I got into what at the time did not have a name, but has since become known as progress studies. Uh, I started reading all about the story of human progress and especially technological and industrial progress and uh, began almost three years ago writing a blog on it, uh, The Roots of Progress. And within the last several months, have transitioned to doing progress studies as my full-time work. In terms of the development of the concept itself, uh, you told me about this piece in The Atlantic, We Need a New Science of Progress. Uh, that's by Patrick Collison and Tyler Cowan. Um, why don't you give us a bit of the history of like who has talked about this term and uh, why you think it's getting fleshed out properly now? Yeah, sure. So I think what happened was there were a number of people who were generally interested in this concept uh, for, I don't know how long, certainly for years. Uh, like I said, I've been interested in it for a few years. I think you started to see some of it in uh, a broader public consciousness with, for instance, a couple of Steven Pinker's books. Uh, he wrote The Better, Better Angels of Our Nature, and then he wrote this kind of follow-up to it uh, that, that broadens the theme called Enlightenment Now. Um, David Deutsch was talking about themes of progress in his book, The Beginning of Infinity. Um, and of course, you know, people like uh, Patrick Collison and Tyler Cowen were kind of independently you know, and separately interested in it. And then what happened... Uh, last summer or so, it was around June or July, was they published this article in The Atlantic that you mentioned uh, titled, We Need a New Science of Progress. And they coined this term, I believe this is where they coined it, the term progress studies. And they said, you know, some of this is being, some progress studies uh, is being done already, uh, but more of it should be done and more attention should be paid to, to what is being done and what will be done in the future. And uh, I don't know if they intended it or not, but this article galvanized a small movement. There were suddenly, I think, a, I think a bunch of people. You know, it was like uh, it's like putting out the bat signal for <laughs> a certain type of person who was who you know who really resonated with this worldview. And uh, what happened was a bunch of people replied. There were uh, a couple of dozen blog posts in response. Patrick collected them all on his uh, website. And a bit of a community started to form. We got a Slack group. Um, so now there's a, a kind of online uh, place where people can come and discuss and organize meetups. And uh, 
yeah, soon after that, in the next uh, you know a few months after that article went, uh, like I said, I ended up deciding to leave my job in the tech industry and go do this as a full-time focus. And so, um, yeah, there's been a lot of activity around this. I think it's a it's a very new, a very nascent uh, community, but there's definitely a clear community forming, a set of people with a, a certain worldview, uh, a certain set of interests, and kind of way of approaching the biggest problems. Uh, in the world. And that's really exciting. Yeah, well, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, when I was looking at this and reading some of the articles you mentioned in our previous discussion, um, I was interested because I think that there's an energy that people seem to be trying to tap into. And, you know, when people used to talk about progress, uh, you know, especially the early 20th century, and you see this prop up, I think, in propaganda, especially, right? Uh, in in America, in the Soviet Union, uh, all over the world, any any regime, especially that would try and present itself as you know the wave of the future, there was there was always an energy electrification or building dams, building skyscrapers, often a very material energy being unleashed that was going to somehow make our lives better, and uh, you know progress. It's not that we don't talk about it, but I think it's taken on a very social connotation now. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to see, and I think there's a lot of appetite that we tap into as well with some of the stories we look at in Palladium, uh, industrial policy and political discussion. There's this fascination I see in different parts of the spectrum with the, the, the sort of aesthetic that would be captured in someone like an FDR or a New Deal. Um, which seems to, and we can talk about why this is. My personal theory is there's kind of a unifying element that seems to arise here, right? Where there's this great project that everyone can somehow participate in that we should dedicate ourselves to. Uh, and I, I think I see a little bit of that when I'm looking at the progress studies discussion. I'd be interested to hear in, uh, if that's true for you or not. Yeah. I think an important part, my take is that an important part of progress studies is not just uh, how did we achieve actual progress, but also at the kind of at the meta level, uh, how do people, what are people's ideas about progress? Uh, what are people's feelings about progress? And how has that changed over time? And how does that loop back and affect progress itself? Uh, my view is that there is a reciprocal relationship between actual progress on the ground and people's ideas of progress, uh, that you know, the, the more actual progress we're having, the more people believe in it, but also the more people believe in it, the more they're going to uh, go for it and uh, support it and attempt to do it and actually achieve uh, progress, you know, and whatever kind of progress we're talking about. Again, mostly we, we tend to talk about um, technological and economic um, progress. Uh, and I do think that it does seem, at least anecdotally, that the the U.S. Uh, at least, and maybe the whole world, had a uh, had a much more, let's just say, positive, uh, optimistic, kind of forward-looking view. Uh, they were positive on progress. They believed it was happening. They believed it was good, uh, and they believed that it could keep happening. And they just actually hit a certain point where they simply assumed that it was going to keep happening. And so, if you look back on visions of the future in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, especially after the world wars when the world seemed to be settling down and we had some peace and there was prosperity. Uh, you see these very positive utopian visions of the future. And then 
again, anecdotally, sometime in the 1960s, maybe in the U.S. at least, that seemed to change. Um, people were very positive about the Apollo missions, uh, but then when those were, you know, when those are over, we hit, we actually hit our goal, we hit the moon, and then, you know, what since then has excited uh, people and made them as positive and optimistic? It, it, anecdotally, it seems to me like they, our visions of the future have been turning increasingly dystopian. And again, I think there's this has a reciprocal relationship with reality in that uh, the more people are dystopian about the future, uh, the more actually like the less energy goes into moving forward because people feel ambivalent about it at best. Um, the more we put in place bureaucratic restrictions to slow things down. Uh, because we're worried uh, and we're and we're sort of enacting a precautionary principle. And so, you know, this is my actual biggest worry for the future is that um, views of progress turning negative will actually redound and uh, slow down or, or, you know, cause a certain type of stagnation. So I think one of the most useful things you could probably do to start is actually look at the progress concept there itself. And you've mentioned, you know, the, the Apollo missions. Uh, if we paint a picture, I think, of what progress looks like what we associate with that word you know there's these major events in human history uh like the moon landing uh there's you know people i think think of statistical changes life expectancy stuff like that but i'd like to narrow down further to that uh, concept of progress itself because i think uh and you mentioned stephen pinker already um when his book came out uh obviously it proved very controversial and it's something you seem to have written about on your blog as well. Um, and what I'm interested to see here, I think you actually mentioned this, that the idea of progress itself is quite new. Um, I, I'd like to think a bit about what makes that term, you know, when we extract everything out here, what are we talking about? Uh, there seems to be a focus, especially when I looked at the Atlantic piece on the idea of material progress. So, you know, we're, we're building more, we're improving our material conditions. Uh, but obviously, when we extrapolate into politics, there seems to be more than that. So uh, in the American, you know, the cultural and political norms that it promotes to the world, progress also has something to do with a democratic political system or a market-based economy or stuff like that. So uh, if you could, could you narrow down what is the essence of what we're talking about here with progress? Well, I think progress is inherently a broad concept. It's certainly broad the way I'm using it, um, but it doesn't have to be vague. So let's see if we can at least make it clear um, uh, and, and know what we're talking about. Uh, at a high level, my view of progress is that it is anything that helps us live better lives, anything that helps us understand the world better and deeper, um, to have more control over our environment, to live you know, longer, healthier, more comfortable lives, to be happier, more thriving and flourishing, sort of more contr uh, you know, uh, control over our own lives in the world. Um, and uh, you know, and to to live together in uh, mutual you know peace, uh, respect, uh, and freedom, and respect for each other's rights. So uh, I think of progress broadly, and I, I think of it in three broad categories: um, technological and economic progress. That is the one that it, when you just say progress, sometimes that's that's all that people think about. It's certainly the most obvious. It's the one with the uh, perhaps most, it's the most measurable, <laughs> um, and it's the one that, uh, you know, that maybe most often gets the attention. Uh, you know, technological and economic progress is more technology, more wealth, 
more infrastructure, more industrial capacity, um, and ultimately, again, sort of more control over the world and ability to live um, uh, comfortable, thriving lives. Uh, I think you also have to look at progress in science and knowledge. Uh, again, sort of progress in the hard physical sciences is perhaps most obvious, the place where it's most clear that there has been progress, maybe the closest thing to being measurable, although even that is very hard to measure. Um, but I would also include progress in the social sciences, progress in understanding ourselves and so forth. And then finally, uh, the third major area where I think about progress is in society and government. So uh, more peace, more freedom, uh, you know, living in harmony, uh, respect for universal rights uh, of all people. And I think, um, you know, that's another area where it's the hardest to see and to believe in progress in that area. But if you just think back 300 years or so, remember that just 300 years ago, the entire world was living essentially under monarchy, right? We had, we had basically one form of government. And in fact, very little else had even been tried at all in all of human history. And most of that was thousands of years ago in the classical world. And so pretty much everybody's living under monarchy and just kind of accepting it. And now today that's completely changed. Uh, a lot of the world now lives in uh, democratic republics, and, uh, you know, monarchy, except for a few places, is pretty much a thing of the past. So we've actually come a long way, um, even though there's a lot farther to go. And, and progress in, in society and government is kind of the, the shakiest and, the, you know, the area where it seems most to be like three steps forward, two steps back. Mm. So uh, something I'd like to kind of break into a little here. Um, we've come a long way and you've outlined here a, a number of different uh, vectors of progress, let's say, and you know, some I think most people would be pretty have a, have a difficult time challenging. Uh, obviously, if you're living longer, if you're living more comfortably, uh, most people in the world would take the opportunity. Um, I think that when people critique the progress concept, or at least the way in which it, in which it's used, what they're often critiquing is maybe that more social and politically weighted aspect of the thing. So. We know, uh, you know, and we're, we're looking at democratic republics here, even within the course of democratic republics, what a democratic republic should look like has itself updated and what the mark of progress here was. So does a democratic republic, uh, you know, is the voting body constituted of like property owning fathers or is it everyone who's a citizen or, or maybe it's even everyone who's a resident or maybe it's not even bound to territory at some point. You know, there's, it's not just that there's competing visions of what those look like, but in fact, I would uh, think that the, the, the metric by which progress is measured itself seems to update uh, as time goes on. And so that aspect of progress, that the thing that we think of as being progressive uh, or as being proof of progress itself seems to change uh, as, as time goes by. And so th there seems to be a relativization that can happen with progress there, at least in a lot of the social and political component of it. Um, you know, we could even maybe say, uh, we're looking at a previous era, someone who lived in the 1400s under Christian monarchies in Europe would probably consider it a regression, for example, that uh, the religion of his time no longer exists because it was such a fundamental part of truth and value uh, for that sort of person. So I'm, I'd like you to touch on this uh, a bit. And 
are we in this position where we almost learn more about progress, in your opinion, as more of it happens? Certainly. So I think what you're touching on is, especially, you know, when I say progress in society and government, ultimately, that's a form of moral progress. And moral progress, of course, you know, any, any type of progress can only be judged by the standards that we have to judge it. Uh, so progress in wealth and technology is relatively easy to judge because that standard doesn't change too much. Uh, you know, we, it, it, what it means to produce more stuff and to produce it more cheaply and to get it distributed to more people in the world is kind of obvious. But when we get into society and government, right, we're judging progress according to the moral standards that we hold. But those moral standards are one of the things that are changing and that actually progress consists in part of changing them. Right. So there is a bit of a trap or a, a, a difficulty, a paradox of uh, how do we judge moral progress, given that we uh, only have you know, the current standards to judge by? And are we just judging you know, uh, progress towards what we believe today? And therefore, doesn't that, you know, isn't that sort of constantly shifting? Yeah, we're, we're confirming our own picture of uh, like progress becomes intensifying those things that we already like. Right. Uh, that's a real risk, and I don't think there's uh, any way around it. There's no way that you're going to uh, come up with some uh, absolute moral standard outside of our own best knowledge and judgment that you can somehow judge ourselves by, right? It's, there's, it's, there's always going to be a bit of a circularity there. I think the, the thing you can do is just, just try to get better over time and uh, try to integrate your view of morality with everything else, integrate it with history uh, and the arc of history, integrate it with actually technological progress. I mean, I think technological progress is a moral good for people all over the world. And so whatever your view of government and society is, if that's not actually consistent with technological progress, then that's a thing you should like go back and check because I think you've made a mistake somewhere. Um, so uh, I think we just need to sort of keep, just like in science, you know, we, we sort of, we keep adding uh, observations and evidence and we build a sort of bigger and more, uh, a bigger picture over time. And we try to just make the picture like bigger and more connected and more integrated and more consistent. And I think that's what we can do with our ideas of morality as well. And that's probably the best we can do. And that's going to have to be good enough. So that sort of interlinkage, um, obviously, it has its maybe its strongest tradition in the West, at least in the Enlightenment. Do you see progress studies as being somehow inextricably linked to the Enlightenment idea? Yes, I do. Although, um, I mean, it depends on what you mean by the term Enlightenment. And Pinker got in a lot of trouble with people um, critiquing you know, uh, the way he used that term. But yes, uh, if you think of, there are different ways to think of the Enlightenment. I think of it as fundamentally the application of reason to every area of human life. And I do think that uh, progress studies is, um, is very much tied to those ideas, because I think those ideas were crucial in actually getting anywhere close to the progress. You know, uh, I think they are fundamental to the progress that we have had. In that sense, I agree with Pinker's fundamental thesis in the book Enlightenment Now. Um, you know, to, just to follow up, uh, to, to take that and follow up on the previous question, um, I think that a, a key way that we can uh, have some kind of objectivity around our moral standards and to not have them just be completely kind of relative to the times and, and completely subjective is by uh, taking that theme, the application of reason, 
and you know working better to ground morality in uh, in reason, logic, and observation. I think uh, just like you know science and technology for uh, a very long time didn't uh, you know wasn't able to make much progress or our knowledge of the world and our and our wasn't able to make much progress because in part we didn't have a kind of uh, rational, logical, and scientific framework. Um, we got better at, we, we got able to, so if you look, for instance, at like um, what the alchemists were trying to do, uh, right, they, uh, uh, you know, they did all kinds of experiments and uh, they were looking for, they were essentially looking for technologies and they were, uh, they were unable to find them. When we had a, uh, you know, when we, when we found a better epistemological method that is more grounded in reality and observation and sort of going very methodically step by step and building up uh, a, an entire picture through careful systematic observation, we were able to make progress, you know, very incrementally over a very long period of time, but progress nonetheless that got us to where we are today. And so I think in a certain sense, you know, maybe that's what we need to apply to um, to morality and politics as well, to try to make it uh, actually more grounded in observation, in reason and logic, um, in integrating our case for whatever we believe with, you know, all these uh, other areas of human life. Yeah, so there's a, I mean, I, I see some very obvious, I guess, topics of, dis of discussion coming up there, um, particularly with the linking of reason to enlightenment morality. I think uh, currently... Uh, I, I want to push a bit more in the progress concept and see what comes up. But, uh, you know, w w when we have this phenomenon of modernity that's coming out where all of these different vectors that we've been talking about seem to intensify, society seem to become more technologically advanced, their politics seems to converge among um, a couple of different recognizably modern lines. One of the reactions against this I think, was the question of, are we able to achieve these kinds of results, but through a different vehicle? You can think of it as, um, you know, is there another modernity that's possible? And I think that, you know, and, and uh, as examples, um, if we just take the, the 20th century, uh, the Cold War might be an, an obvious one. Although there, I think that the, the two major forces of, you know, the American alliance and the Soviet alliance both saw themselves as somehow caught up in the mission of progress. But the, the Soviet idea of progress and, you know, the, what has now become the Chinese one were quite different, especially in their political expressions. Um, and from their perspective, it was at least possible that they would be able to outdo uh, the, the West on the technological ground. The Soviet Union didn't manage to do this. Uh, China's still an open question, it looks like. But we also have, for example, the Islamic Revolution in Iran. I think quite clearly, you know, the, the question there is what does an Islamic modernity look like, according to a certain definition of, you know, uh, of those terms. Um, I, I guess what I want to push on here is uh, th this path of the Enlightenment phenomenon, the idea of progress, and this flourishing of modernity uh, that creates the concrete results, better quality of life, etc., that we see as like obviously the fruits of progress. Do you think what's being proposed here uh, by yourself, by the idea of progress studies, is the only path here? 
or are there other possible paths to similar results? Uh, you know, is it possible that, for example, um, the, the Chinese or the Iranian model might appeal at least to a certain kind of society or a certain kind of person to the point where the path just diverges into something that would not be considered progress by uh, the majority of Westerners, but still has somehow seems to function like it has an internal logic and consistency that doesn't just wreck itself. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that can function for uh, a certain period of time, especially when the context of a world where they're not the only uh, thing of that type. But um, <clears throat> you did a good job of laying out a number of different uh, maybe approaches to modernity. Uh, you're absolutely right that the Soviets, uh, the, the communists of, of Soviet Russia, they they were inspired by big visions of technological and industrial progress. Uh, indeed, the you know to, to to my understanding, in the 1930s or so, you know, Western intellectuals, certainly American intellectuals, uh, b were b believed that the Russia might be onto a, a much better system than America had. It was seen by many people as more uh, scientific, more efficient. Right, they didn't have all this uh, this terrible wastefulness of you know competing. Uh, companies in the same industry, they just had one single state-run yeah, industry. I've heard, it, uh, I've heard it referred to as a, in a, an application of reason to economic management itself. Yeah, and remember, so this wasn't long after, like, Taylorism, right, where uh, Taylor mm -hmm. came through and, and was applying. And, and for centuries at this point, the, the West has been advancing by applying more systematic, uh, you know, rigorous approach to many different disciplines, quantitative analysis, uh, right? Ever since Newton came up with his system of the heavens, people had been inspired by his example and wanted to apply, you know, math and, and geometry and systems to, to everything, right? And you have to use this to figure out everything. And so, uh, so, you know, and so then Taylor came along and he figured out, he showed how you could make factories more efficient, for instance, and so, you know, naturally, some people wanted to apply this at the level of the entire economy. And uh, when the Soviets started doing that, some people were worried that, or worried and or hopeful, you know, depending on their view, uh, that that it might work and that they might be actually far more productive uh, than the United States. And of course, it turned out exactly the opposite. Um, uh, the the United States, the sort of the the free, open, organic uh, kind of. Uh, you know, not top-down controlled capitalist system was the one that actually w had the, the, you know, the dynamism and the self-organization to, um, to create the progress that everybody wanted. Uh, now, in the modern world, the examples that you offered, um, I mean, I don't see, uh, I'm not that familiar with Iran, but I certainly don't see anything there that uh, is any kind of a huge uh, sort of like 21st century success story. Uh, China is a very different example, right? So China has seen an enormous amount of uh, of actual progress in, in in recent decades, and and good for them. And yes, the the worrisome thing uh, is that they are combining it with a with this really strict authoritarianism. Uh, you know, there were people who thought that capitalism uh, in China or, you know, some sort of opening up and economic freedom would give them, you know, we'd, they'd get like a taste of capitalism. And then, of course, they would want more and more would mean more of everything. Uh, you know, all of uh, what uh, what Palladium called the, the liberal synthesis, right? All of that. Yeah, uh, the, because if rights. these things are interlinked with each other, then presumably, if you get more of one, somehow 
the the rest should start to assert themselves. Right. I think that was the idea. And it seems to be, uh, I, I mean, I'd like to hear your comment on this because the way you've described progress does seem to assume that these things are somewhat interlinked. Yes. So, I mean, in China, as far as I can tell, that's not happening, right? They're certainly making a lot of economic progress, but that has not given them the idea that they need to uh, have more respect for human rights, have more individual freedom, have a less collectivistic society. Um, I mean, it's a little, I, I don't know, like it's, it, it's still early, right? These changes take a long time, but I don't see and nor know of any evidence uh, that things are going that way. So, um, you know, one question, of course, is how long can that, uh, you know, how long can that keep going? A lot of China's growth in, in recent decades has been catch-up growth. Can they, uh, you know, it's been, it's been one-to-n uh, growth rather than sort of zero-to-one innovation. Can they, uh, you know, when they, when they are fully caught up to the frontier, can they actually push the frontier forward? Um, and there are some arguments that they can, or they're even getting ahead of the U.S. I don't know. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I, I don't know whether uh, whether that's really true or what the what their prospects are. Um, so yeah, certainly China is maybe the biggest challenge to this notion that um, that all of the Western values, including um, individualism, and uh, you know, there's a certain uh, uh, whatever the opposite of respect for authority is, right? A certain kind of healthy distrust of authority, um, and you know these these ideas that yeah, a are streak not of the freedom, strong maybe. Yeah. I can certainly say so. Uh, you know, now you're asking, all right? Do, do I think these things are inextricably linked? Do you need all of the the full set of Western values, uh, in or, or Enlightenment values, in order to make progress? Um, I mean, my bias is still yes. Uh, in part, that's because I personally like those values. I'm not yet at a point where I can, uh, you know, prove that case. And that's one of the long-term goals of my work in particular. And I think it's one of the long-term questions that progress studies should address. I think prog- hopeful, I hope that progress studies uh, as, a, as a field, a discipline, a, a community, a movement, whatever it is, is able to be broad enough that it's able to sort of honestly ask that question and honestly consider the best arguments and for for every possible answer to that question and and you know come to some real answer. I, I hope it doesn't just ideologically coalesce around one answer. Uh, you know, I'd like to see the most open and intellectually honest debate that we can have. Um, but I'm going into this with a careful eye towards yeah, what are those. Uh, values, uh, those enlightenment values, and how do they relate to progress? And can we actually see whether they're needed or not? And if so, can we can we actually make a case for it? Uh, a convincing case, a ground, a case grounded in evidence, in economics, in history. Um, well, I think one of the most interesting questions uh, to be asked here might actually be: To what extent do these things start to trade off against each other? Right. So. Uh, we, I think it's very easy to take uh, a set of different values that coalesce together and forget that the circumstances where that happen don't necessarily, you know, aren't always universalizable. So uh, democracy and liberalism assert themselves in the 19th century. Uh, but at the same time that the the rising middle, upper middle classes are themselves becoming prominent. So the people both driving and benefiting from the material progress start to want to uh, assert political power. And so naturally, 
uh, the very familiar liberal uh, political idea starts to coalesce. Uh, but if you live in a society where development is essentially managed, driven by a very centralized authority that uses that progress as a way to ground its own legitimacy, uh, it's much harder for me to see how that would necessarily arise. And, you know, I, I could push even further where uh, let's look at things like the way that we have economic wealth currently, but a lot of it serving... Uh, you know, monopolistic or oligopolistic forms of economic power uh, or, or global economic power that can actually outcompete states, which are traditionally the guardians of, of the political rights. And so maybe we enter this weird situation where now, uh, in order to create this global economic network that can serve the material need, we actually start to deconstruct and route around the political aspects of the progress idea that, you know, from the 70s and 80s were already being seen to it by some some sectors uh, as outmoded uh, are, you know, when it comes to those trade offs, do you think there's an obvious choice to be made or does it destroy the progress idea as something unified? So uh, with regard to China and, for example, and, you know, you're pointing out that a lot of the growth there has been and the, and the progress they've seen has been relatively centrally managed. And so uh, I think one thing that's true is uh, when a system is working and it's working for most people and they feel their lives are getting better, uh, they don't they have they have little to no motivation to challenge the system. Right. In fact, they can there's probably a human bias to be in favor of the of the system if you think things are, are basically working. Uh, there's very few people who like it's it's this very tiny minority of people who are uh, kind of intellectual enough and who take ideas seriously enough that they're going to step back and apart from maybe their own personal lives and the lives of, of the people around them and kind of what they see through the course of their lifetime, step back and analyze the system purely intellectually from first principles and kind of make a decision about whether they like the system or not. Um, a lot, I would say the majority of people These are, things just are usually like more, very on, on the margin. Yeah, they're just more pragmatic than that, right? The pattern of history is something more like, uh, you know, the idealists are kind of, uh, and the, the intellectuals are sort of talking and they're studying and they're debating what is the best system and can we prove it and should we reform the system and should we redo it? And everyone else sort of doesn't care until there's some shock to the system, right? Uh, and you see mm -hmm. this in many, I don't know if you see this in all cases, but you see this in, in many cases, right? What precipitated the French Revolution? What precipitated the Communist Revolution? Uh, it was these crises related to war and economics and the country running out of money and, you know, things like that, right? It was when people weren't happy. Um, and these things can happen very quickly, right? Right. Uh, Lenin in 1916, I believe, uh, had decided that he was just never going to see the communist revolution in his lifetime. Um, right. He just thought, no. Nope, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can it's go from disillusionment to disaster quite quickly. Um, that being said, though, it, it's not always obvious that the, the result is the thing one is looking for. Right. So if one assumes that uh, eventually a shock happens that results in basically a democratic form of society, uh, that can be true. But in the Soviet uh, or in the Bolshevik Revolution uh, or in China, right, where the the shocks were essentially, you know, the end of the imperial era, 
uh, social strife and then World War II, the the thing that resulted there was not the sort of regime and society that a, a Western uh, progressive who looks at the Enlightenment would have really been hoping uh, would be achieved. Uh, I, I guess it's isn't there a confirmation bias that can occur there where, well, you know, eventually something will happen that brings our progress to bear. So I think that, uh, you know, part of the part of the problem, there's this there's this weird there's this paradox. Uh, there's this sort of inner contradiction in that the the West overall has been the most successful in driving this human progress forward. But we have been terrible at, in my opinion, at uh, identifying how we did it and communicating that to the rest of the world. And so um, in the 19th and 20th century, I think there was this overall pattern where uh, it became clear to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, you talk about shocks to China. I mean, the biggest shock to China, of course, was the Opium Wars. And uh, after, mm -hmm. you know, thousands of years of considering themselves to be the center of the universe and the, you know, the sort of the greatest and most advanced and most powerful civilization, uh, on Earth, as which they were, as far as they knew, uh, you know, these uh, the, these English came along, right? These these British and just and completely dominated them in this war and and humiliated them. And uh, you know, in a sense, China's been trying to recover from that ever since and regain its its rightful place in the world. Um, but uh, you know, similar things happened, for instance, to the Middle East. You know, the Middle East. Um, and kind of Islamic culture was uh, dominant for a long time, for the first thousand years or so of its history, right? And then its fortunes kind of slowly reversed, uh, and eventually uh, it found itself not able to uh, compete with the West anymore, uh, even though it had been it had been you know far more than able to compete for for a very long time. And so um, you know, uh, so then these these places that suddenly find themselves behind in terms of um, in terms of economic growth, in terms of ultimately political and military power, right? They then turned to the West and they sought to find out what it was that, uh, you know, uh, they essentially asked us, <laughs> how did you do it? And they did that in part by sending their people to Western universities to go get educated and come back. But what did they learn in the universities? Uh, what they learned was uh, a lot of, uh, you know, they learned communist theory, they learned um, they learned a lot of ideas that are actually uh, anti right the, the the West was already starting to turn against itself in certain ways and so they learned a lot of ideas that were actually anti uh, enlightenment and kind of anti what got us here in my opinion and so then they took those ideas back right I mean like Mao bringing communism back um, and this happened in the Middle East as well um, you know they uh, with uh, Nasser in Egypt and uh, so you know there were a lot of these things where they they came and they brought not the um, not individualism not um, sort of you know democratic republics but they took they took back basically collectivism and uh, uh, and, and collectivist systems and so uh, I think that's part of the great uh, I don't know whether to call it a tragedy or a farce of the 20th century but um, you know that's kind of what happened and so I think fundamentally um, when I think about when I think about all of this, I think the West needs to get better at understanding itself and, and communicating. Right. So it needs to get better at understanding how did we actually achieve what we've achieved. Let's give the right uh, factors credit for that. And then let's figure out how to actually communicate that uh, to the rest of the world. So if we want, you know, let's let's maybe try for round two of this where everybody can come 
again and let's, uh, or maybe we can just all do it together this time. Maybe the whole world can just collaborate and, and actually look at the history and figure out what really got us here. And instead of us, you know, exporting um, communism and fascism to the rest of the world, let's maybe try for uh, a round two where we export enlightenment ideals. Yeah, I, I think, though, an interesting example of this happening reverse uh, is actually, uh, and it's something I think we've discussed in the podcast before, um, with Chinese international students. So uh, when I was in undergrad just a few years ago, um, I, you know, I, I, a lot of people who were coming over to study in Western universities were basically intending to stay at least for a while uh, in in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe, uh, work there, maybe settle there. Um, I know that there has been something of a change on this. And so the rates of Chinese international students, at least, who come study at Western universities uh, are the the numbers wanting to go back and who have no intention of staying in the the Western country that they're studying in is getting higher and higher. Uh, and th this is interesting to me because, one, it's definitely seems to be the case that the Chinese state is viewing the politics that they're exposed to similarly to how uh, America might have once viewed these, you know, these the socialist international schools backed by the Soviets. Um, but that also means on the individual level, uh, w when it comes to what does the future look like, you know, w where is hope for me? How will I better my life? They actually think it can be done in, in Shanghai, in Shenzhen, in Beijing. Um, there was actually a piece uh, that uh, was on was published by Palladium recently. Um, and what it had to do with was basically this phenomenon in Chinese society where the generation that is starting their professional careers now has a very different view of hope, basically. Uh, the piece is called The American Dream is Alive in China uh, by Jean Fan. And uh, it was quite a controversial piece when we published it. But what it was focusing on was this notion that all these, uh, you know, the attraction that America had, right, that it could offer this material prosperity, this kind of personal freedom and the sense of hope, uh, that was clearly very important to its standing in the world and why so many people around the world listened to it and thought, well, if, if America says that the political ideas are part of how you get that society, then we have to adopt those political ideas the situation now where if there are, you know, there's a large segment of people in the world which basically think that they can have, uh, you know, personal advancement, a comfortable life and basic hope outside of the the norms that we consider part of progress, I, I'd be interested to hear how progress studies deals with that because it seems like either one has to say that hmm maybe progress starts to or at least one possible form of progress doesn't actually look like something we like like if if you can have an authoritarian state that provides basic stability advancement and you know you don't have to worry about walking down the street and getting picked up by secret police but we place a, a high value on on democracy, uh, is it enough to just say, well, there's a contradiction and maybe there'll be a shock at some point? 
Or is it possible for progress to start looking like something we don't like? Well, you know, in a certain sense, um, you, if you if you decide that you don't like progress, then you you know, or or the form it's taking, then you, there's a contradiction there to resolve, right? You either need to you, you need to ask why you you don't like it, and either you've got a good reason, in which case maybe it's not uh, unadulterated progress, uh, right? If there's something actually bad happening, or maybe you don't have a good reason and, and you should change um, your standards. Uh, but you know, this is part of why. This yeah. is part. I mean, of there why, can be localized losers even within a globalized progress, sure. right? But this is also part of why I don't define progress narrowly as just uh, technological and economic progress. I think you want to look at moral and social progress as well. And I think that uh, uh, I think that that human rights do matter. I think that individual freedom does matter. I think it matters not just because it's a personal, you know, aesthetic preference or, or ideological preference, because I think it I think it actually matters to human life and happiness. Um, I think you think people are happier when they can choose uh, the life they want for themselves. Um, and certainly, you know, today, I mean, you said you say, OK, maybe uh, maybe you don't have to be worried about getting stopped uh, by the secret police. Uh, true, but not if you're an Uyghur. Uh, so, sure. uh, you know, so those rights aren't uh, or that that uh, that perfect uh, sort of world or uh, is, is not extended to everybody. And I think universalism in the sense of seeing every human being as, um, you know, kind of a fundamental moral equal and worthy of the same fundamental political rights, uh, I think is a key part of. Um, that Enlightenment worldview and is a key part of what I think of as progress. Yeah, I also don't think, though, that from uh, the Chinese perspective, they would see uh, things like, you know, re-education camps as as part of the system, right? It, it There's this weird thing that happens where um, when there's a contradiction with us, it's kind of this unfortunate but short-term pragmatic exception that we have to make, whereas the shortfalls in the opposing system uh, are in some way proof of a contradiction. So, you know, y y you can compare the ideal of Western progress with a re-education camp, but simultaneously you could compare, say, black Americans under Jim Crow or, or the internment camps during the war uh, or, you know, re residential schools for indigenous people. And, uh, you know, I, I think actually the residential school um, example is good because at the time it was actually considered part of progress, right? There was propaganda about the lifting up of these, you know, backward people uh, to a sort of Western advanced form of life. Now we look back and we believe that that was actually, uh, you know, th this was actually something that shouldn't have happened. So uh, from within the the idea of progress you can kind of say well we became wiser maybe we we better understood our own values or we saw the damage that it did uh but it seems like you could extend that to any competing notion of progress as well uh i mean you know soviet apologists would probably have said the same thing i mean i think you need to look at a few things right one thing you need to look at is what what was in the past that we have you know moved on from versus what is happening right now um, I think you also, you know, it, it, you have to realize that, of course, you know, the U.S. has not always perfectly lived up to its own ideals. I think that's that's clear. I think you want to look at both the practical implementation and the stated ideals. Um, both of those are important. Neither can be ignored. 
the ideals, the stated ideals sort of tell you uh, where people want to be and kind of what the standard is that you can move things towards. And, uh, you know, the implementation tells you where things are, uh, where are in practice and where they are at the moment. Um, but I, I mean, to, to, to maybe take this in a, um, on a, on a bit of a tangent, but, but in, you know, to, to address a kind of a different aspect of the point that you're getting at, you're asking this question of, um, can we, you know, what, what if progress seems to be, uh, at least let's say technological and economic progress, and maybe some scientific progress seems to be possible within a framework that doesn't include what we would think of as political and moral progress. What if it can, what yeah. if uh, an authoritarian China, right? So what if these different parts don't all go together? Um, essentially, uh-oh, you know, what now? Um, uh, you know, checkmate enlightenment progress people, haha. Um, and, and where would that leave us, right? And uh, I guess, so again, my thinking on this is, um, again, a lot of the, you know, China and other parts of the world, a lot of what they've been doing is, um, is, is this catch-up growth. I think the really interesting thing is going to be, you know, what happens when a lot of the world is much closer to the frontier of growth and where in order to keep moving forward, we really have to do a lot more uh, breakthroughs on the frontier. Who's going to be able to do that? Um, and I have started to see evidence in some of the stories that I've looked at that um, one of the biggest barriers to progress actually is the weight of tradition and authority, and that these are sort of huge forces that need to be overcome, and that a lot of how uh, the West was able to break out, break away, and uh, and create the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution was that it was able to shift away from slowly, painfully, with, with much difficulty, was able to shift away from a reliance on tradition and authority and to, uh, you know, to look to, to base uh, things much more on, um, on firsthand uh, evidence, observation, and ultimately reason and logic. Um, and so I think that these things actually are tied together I think uh, I think you can actually uh, I, I think a, a full study of history would actually show that pretty clearly, and I think the future is going to bear that out. Mm. I, I want to um, start looking a little bit at the institutional aspect of this in a moment, but something you said there, uh, I just want to kind of. Uh, look at this notion of tradition. Obviously, you know, th there are many traditions, there are many forms of tradition, but uh, would it not be the case, though, that in a lot of ways, let's say functional social traditions are actually ways that the reasoning out, uh, even, you know, the, the decentralized cybernetic reasoning across many different generations is carried forward? Oh, uh, certainly traditions have their place. Um, I'm not saying that all tradition is bad or should be gotten rid of. There are many traditions that I personally like, but tradition has its place and its place is not in deciding scientific truth. Um, or, uh, and its place well, is also isn't not... the scientific, uh, you know, the, the, the scientific method is a method of, of understanding reality, but people, I, I would say, especially people I know who are fans of folks like Steven Pinker and who consider themselves devotees of the Enlightenment tradition, uh, you know, I, I've, I've said it already, there is something of a tradition there, is there not? Uh, there, there's figures 
that come up that that are aspired to like say galileo uh or or, or tesla you know there's there's this ethos that comes with the actual fact of the scientific method and how you use it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think you need to be very careful with uh, terminology here, right? You need to be very careful with what you mean by a term like tradition and uh, avoid accidentally equivocating between maybe multiple meanings of that word. So let's take a more concrete example. So medicine, for example. Um, Medicine has a long tradition in in Western history. Uh, It goes back to you know, early theories of medicine go back to Hippocrates and Galen. Um, and for a very long time, centuries, right, a, a millennia or two, there was this humoral theory that, uh, that kind of dominated. There was this theory that there are four different fundamental types of fluids or humors in the body, and that disease was ultimately like an imbalance in these humors. Um, in fact, this is, I believe this is even explicitly tied in certain ways to uh, the kind of uh, classical, like, four elements um, view of, of uh, physics and chemistry. Yeah, and, the microcosm, macrocosm uh, yeah. components. And if you look at how we moved away from this, uh, the answer is kind of like slowly and haltingly. And a lot of it was because uh, Galen, for example, had been just sort of established as this authority figure in, uh, you know, in medicine. And it was just like really difficult to contradict him. And so even people who did want to contradict him kind of had to uh, sort of tiptoe around it and say, like, well, of course, you know, he was fundamentally right, but here I just had this little tweak to kind of add to it. Um, uh, you know, and so even as people started to figure out that maybe there was something infectious uh, about disease, right? Maybe there was, um, or, you know, someone else, there was a, a, a physician, I'm blanking on his name right now, who did hundreds of um, uh, uh, autopsies on patients. Autopsies, by the way, were another thing that was banned by a certain moral idea, perhaps a certain moral tradition. But somebody, you know, did uh, did many autopsies, and actually, uh, in in uh, the the spirit of the scientific revolution, kept very detailed, careful, systematic notes, correlating the uh, what he found in the uh, in the autopsies, specifically any. Um, anything that was uncharacteristic about the organs, and correlating that with the symptoms reported by the patient uh, prior to death. And through this came to an idea that seems obvious to us today, but was actually not a part of the, the Hippocratic or Galenic theory, well, the humoral theory, which was that uh, a disease is uh, often, if not always, a, uh, a, disease, a disease of specific organs, right? It's like localized to certain parts of the body. Um, and so, and, and you look at what these, uh, you know, what these writers wrote and how they put their discoveries out. And again, it was all just uh, sort of like it, it took a very long time um, for people to kind of work their way away from these, uh, these ideas that had been established uh, for thousands of years just because there were these kind of revered ancient figures who, um, you know, who had, who had espoused them, who had written them, who probably never, maybe never meant to be the authorities that they became, <laughs> right? Maybe they were just putting out the best ideas they had. The thing with traditions like this, right, is uh, it's often hard to know. I mean, it's always, it's hard to know what you don't know. You, uh, traditions are often tested either on the margin or sometimes like a big earth shattering paradigm change comes along and and sometimes uh they're updated i think that uh when 
the best defenses that I've seen, and this is becoming more discussed in segments of academia as well, of social traditions, are essentially that they do kind of act cybernetically in interesting ways. So the example I would come up with here is uh, in the field of anthropology, uh, I know that uh, traditional ecological knowledge as a, a field of study has become more and more prominent in the past, uh, I, I think, 20 years or so. And so this looks at essentially things like resource management, especially by small groups, usually tribes, small communities of various kinds, where there are these social traditions governing uh, how certain things are done. And so the reason people's actions uh, are are you know people are doing certain things because a tradition tells them to, not necessarily because they understand what the the ecological the the managerial effect of what they're doing is. And yet, uh, the actual effects of their actions was very often beneficial in terms of. Uh, properly stewarding a certain resource, uh, you know, not overfishing or um, the health of a certain ecosystem. And uh, for a long time, the, these traditions were not studied at all by anthropology because they were seen as, you know, we can safely assume that these are just dumb superstitions. Uh, and But eventually it was realized, like, wait, there's actually knowledge here, but it's sort of a knowledge that even the people who possess the tradition themselves don't necessarily fully understand. Like they're doing something because on a certain, you know, at a certain time of year, maybe you have to throw out old food, say, uh, or, or you only fish on certain days or at certain seasons. But the effect was a form of knowledge that was passed down in a collective way. And so I, I think that that um, is probably itself an improvement of the way that tradition is understood, uh, you know, in terms of how it functions and where it carries legitimate knowledge. And so I, I think that probably challenges, from my perspective, the, the dichotomy that you kind of presented where we have tradition and then we have reason and these two are kind of in conflict with each other. Well, I would see it more as an evolution. So uh, I, I can certainly believe that tradition is better than nothing. Um, you know, there's there's nothing worse than having to figure out literally everything from scratch, right? You, you're thrown thrown into the woods and uh, left to survive. Uh, so it, it it's not at all surprising to me that certain cultures evolved certain traditions that actually turned out to be um, like good ideas and good advice. But uh, what that also gets you is many thousands of years of stasis, right? And so if we want to look at okay, how did we get beyond mm -hmm. that, right? How did we get that hockey stick uh, curve of human progress? that we can look at along so many different dimensions. Like how do we, how, how do we break out of that kind of status quo for thousands of years? Well, we did it by evolving to the next level. Um, and the next level beyond tradition is, uh, is, is discarding tradition and replacing it with reason and science. And so, um, you know, it's no, <clears throat> you can maybe respect uh, the tradition for what it was able to accomplish in terms of keeping our species alive uh, for, for many thousands of years. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's the right model anymore or, or going forward, right? I think what we've, and I think what the scientific and industrial revolutions have shown is that actually we need a way to 
systematically and consistently improve on traditions, right? So how do we, um, or, uh, 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 we need a way of improving on ideas that's better than mere tradition, you know? Again, maybe tradition is better than, if you've got nothing else other than, if you have no other way to evaluate an idea, uh, except for the fact that we've been using this idea for a long time. Okay, maybe that's a um, maybe that's a fine way to evaluate ideas. But we have now come up with much better ways of evaluating ideas, and those are the ways that we should be going with. And a lot of people, uh, you know, for a very long time, and maybe some people still today, were I think stuck in a a millennia old uh, way of evaluating ideas, which was well, we've been doing this forever. And uh, I, I just think there are, you know, we've, we've found and, and we've proved that there are better ways to evaluate and to iterate uh, on our ideas and to evolve our ideas and to come to better ways. I think this would actually be a good place to um, start transitioning into one of the other uh, areas I wanted to discuss, which is actually something like this, you know, what does it take to create, uh, when a system has grown old or outdated, what does it take to create something new? Um, you're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, Samo Boria's work, uh, correct? A bit. Yeah. So I, I was re so Samo Boria, for those listening, um, uh, he's written for us as well. Uh, he's uh, based in the Bay Area. Very original thinker on the topic of institutions, institutional continuity, and especially like what does it take to create resilient forms of social technology. And this is something I wanted to, to discuss with you because. Uh, as I was looking over um, some of these pieces, I think that it seems like one of the goals of a field of progress studies um, is looking at the institutions that have driven progress in the past. And I'm speaking here of like of governments, uh, of institutions of knowledge, like the scientific community, etc. And figuring out, are these still working? Why have some of them failed? Because if, if the idea of progress is in crisis and if we seem to be, uh, you know, certain forms of progress might even be stagnating or getting lost, there seems to have, be, there seems to have been rather a failure of continuity. Uh, there was something that was not passed on to the current generation from some previous generation that was doing this better. Um, I, I'd like to hear a bit about how you're thinking about institutions in the work you're doing so far. Yeah. I mean, one thing I should say at a high level is uh, this entire conversation has been very philosophical, which I uh, love and uh, personally appreciate. But my method in uh, the work that I'm doing right now is explicitly and deliberately very bottom up. So mm -hmm. I have been starting from, uh, you know, rock bottom in terms of I've been looking at the specific stories of specific uh, technologies. What is steel and where does it come from? Um, you know, how mm. did we learn to determine our position on the globe uh, from, uh, you know, through astronomical calculations when we're out on a ship uh, before GPS was invented? Um, why is it that we use alternating current for our electrical power grid uh, in, in almost all places instead of direct current? Um, how did we... Uh, invent vaccines. Where did they come from? And, uh, you know, what did, what good did they do for the world? So these are some of the basic stories that I've been investigating. Uh, part of my view on how to do progress studies is that you actually need a really firm grounding uh, in those things. You know, if, if you want to ask, if you want to answer questions of um, where did progress come from, what causes it, and so forth, I think the first thing you need to be able to answer is what progress have we actually seen? 
if you want to answer, for instance, what caused the Industrial Revolution or why did it happen, you know, when and where it did, which there's an entire academic literature and, and field devoted to, the first thing you need to be able to answer is what was the Industrial Revolution? And uh, I'm afraid, I think it's a, a, uh, a sort of a, a crisis, a tragedy of our school system that most people don't really have an answer to that question, right? If you ask, the, if you asked me, certainly before I began this, uh, this, this study, what was the Industrial Revolution? Well, my answer would have been roughly, I don't know, it was that time during the 19th century, I think, when there were like a lot of inventions and stuff, probably with steam engines. Yeah, it's very aesthetic, right? It's kind of, you have peasants and farms, and then suddenly there's Train, uh, factories and yeah, dark factories. satanic mills, uh, as, as the saying goes, cropping up, and then there's gears and steam, and, and now we're here. Uh, it's, it's hard to really give a definition. Yeah. So, um, you know, so that's kind of what I'm doing and, and how I'm approaching it. Because of that, I don't have a grand unified theory of progress yet. But um, I do think, uh, you know, I do think that institutions do play a crucial role. Um, certainly coming into this, I had certain biases about, um, about institutions. I think also along the way, I've maybe, um, you know, come to see some things that are, uh, that are important in ways that I didn't see before. Um, you know, certainly coming into this, coming into this, I had this, I had a, uh, and, and still in many ways have a, uh, a bias for um, free markets. I'm kind of a laissez-faire capitalist uh, kind of guy. Um, I think, you know, a lot of what uh, Jonah wrote about uh, in the, the post-liberal synthesis, uh, the, you know, a lot of the liberal synthesis that he described uh, appeals to me. Uh, I think that's why we're here right now. And for the audience, th this is our opening piece here to, uh, towards a post-liberal synthesis. Yeah, so um, rule of law... <laughs> Um, you know, sort of stable government, um, intellectual property rights, uh, and you know, uh, free markets, and all of these things, uh, I think, are, are are pretty important for the uh, the overall story of uh, certainly of the industrial revolution. Um, one type of institution that I uh, you know didn't expect to, it, it just didn't occur to me. Uh, beforehand would have such a big impact, but in retrospect, it makes perfect sense, is actually uh, funding or financing institutions. Um, and I, I include financial, you know, for-profit financial institutions in this, certainly, um, banks, uh, venture capitalists, and so forth, but also, um, you know, all the other ways that, that research and development and ultimately progress gets financed. Uh, and that, so that includes government grants, um, the university system, which kind of funnels, uh, you know, all these grants to researchers and, and so forth. Um, it's remarkable to me how many times in the history of progress, there's been something promising that somebody was working on. They had some kind of a lead and then it didn't get followed up for a long time. What seems to me to be a long time. Uh, and some of it was just because they, they weren't able to raise the money for it or there was a, uh, or, you know, there just weren't a lot of resources kind of going into this thing, which in retrospect was like amazingly promising. It was like the beginning of an entire revolution of an entire industry. And, you know, nobody saw it at the time or nobody was funding it. And so I think, uh, you know, one thing that we should look at very carefully is what are the mechanisms by which different forms of progress can get funded? And do we have the right uh, set of mechanisms? Do we have the right portfolio of mechanisms? We need some mechanisms uh, for funding that are um, uh, that are high risk and some that are low risk. We need some that are, uh, that are pay off on a very long time scale and some that pay off on a shorter time scale. And, um, I just don't know if we have all of the institutions or, or, you know, mo models and mechanisms that we need. 
um, anything that can be a for-profit business that can generate uh, a, a profit on less than about 10 years, uh, you know, return time probably can get funded through, um, you know, through through mechanisms that we have today of, you know, for-profit investing. Venture capitalists will, you know, invest in anything they think can get them multiples or, you know, orders of magnitude return within less than, say, five to 10 years, um, you know, for sort of, uh, even less risky things or shorter term time frames. Obviously, we have banking and loans and, and so forth. Um, but how do we invest in things that are going to pay off on like a 25 to 30 year time frame, right? Or let alone a 100 year time frame? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say this. It seems like um, in order to uh, get investment for a 20 year time, it seems like 20 years is, is a magic number in some ways in terms of that's the point where pretty much all the normal forms of investment have radically dropped off. And it's extremely difficult to get anything when you're working on that kind of timeline, uh, which isn't even a generation long. Um, you really almost are dependent on weird private investors at that point. Uh, I, I remember uh, some years back, I was visiting the city of Dresden in Germany, and there's a great uh, museum there of, uh, I think it's called the Museum of Science and Math. And one of the displays that I remember very vividly was all these different clocks that were being invented at the time. You know, Germany as such didn't even exist yet. These were coming from like this little, you know, the Kingdom of Saxony. Um, and people were experimenting with the most efficient ways of building these machines. And on a lot of these clocks would be these ornate uh, kind of plaques thanking the king uh, of Saxony for his, you know, for his august patronage of the sciences. And it was a very funny kind of synthesis, this, you know, old language of, of European monarchy mixed with these very recognizably modern scientific experimental products. And, uh, you know, it, it got me thinking, you know, what, who, who, where is the modern equivalent? Like, you can get grants for a five-year uh, term of investment, but this king was, you know, an, an enlightenment guy. He was willing to fund all kinds of crazy stuff, I'm sure stuff that most of the population wouldn't have thought was worth funding, but that actually ended up being very valuable. Uh, you know, in, in terms of the stuff you've looked at, you, you were talking about these object level developments like, like steel and so on. Who do you think is the most important funder that we've lost, like that no longer exists? Who? Um... Who or, or what institution, like uh, a, a certain kind of private donor or, or states or what have you? Yeah, I don't know if there's, I, I don't know if there is anything that we have lost. Um, I did. Uh, I, I actually sat down with um, a group of like-minded folks uh, some months ago, and we, we brainstormed a bit on a whiteboard about uh, some different types of funding mechanisms. And we, we had a lot more things under the, the present category than under the sort of you know past only. Um, and I can barely remember what we even put in there. So it's not necessarily that we've lost anything. In fact, I think it's maybe... Um, Maybe the opposite. I think what's more important is what what new mechanisms can we invent um, now that we've seen how important this is and how many different types of mechanisms there are. Can we do kind of a more systematic survey and maybe um, uh, you know maybe even sort of chart them out on their characteristics? Like I said, short versus long term, high versus low risk. Um, you know, ease of turning a profit versus you know how, how much of the value can you capture versus how much value is generated uh, is created. 
Um, and, you know, maybe if we map those out, then we would see like a hole, right? Maybe we'd see there's something missing and it would almost be like, you know, astronomers finding a new planet, right? We could sort of like find, finding a new funding mechanism. Well, it must have these characteristics. Let's, or, you know, let's try to invent it. Um, I mean, I think, so my, my personal take on this um, is a little bit different from the way a lot of people might think about it. I, so some of the challenges are, uh, again, so very long-term investment, right? So something that doesn't pay off for like a generation. Um, and other challenges are things that where it's uh, difficult to capture the value some way just because of the nature of the economic good that's being created, right? Some sort of, um, uh, you know, maybe sort of like a non-excludable good. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people would uh, reply would sort of look at this and say well obviously for-profit mechanisms fail here therefore let's like find more and better kind of non-profit uh, mechanisms my take on it is um in general anything that can be for-profit probably should be because uh, for-profit mechanisms actually seem to have the best iterative feedback loops that refine them uh that cut out paths that aren't working that uh draw more resources to paths that are working they tend to be more decentralized um and, and uh, you know, less this kind is of a, a the market discipline, you would say. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I would actually like to think about how can we apply that market discipline to to more and more things? Like, are there ways that we can, um, you know, take things that where you can't profit from them today and maybe come up with. And this is where institutions come in. Maybe we actually need different um, different regulatory regimes, uh, different types of intellectual property, just different ways of kind of like recognizing uh, sort of different and very creative approaches to uh, to property rights, especially intellectual property rights, that would let people maybe profit from things that they can't profit from today. Um, you know, not in a way where they um, uh, are are going to be uh, creating, uh, capturing all the value they create, or you know, more importantly, not in a way where they capture value that they didn't create, but a way where they can capture some of the value they create, so that they can actually go ahead and create it. Um, and, and get funded and financed to create it, and then that, that value actually gets created for the world. Um, so th this is speculative, but it's the kind of direction I'd like to take things. Yeah, I'd like to throw a challenge there, uh, actually, to the market discipline idea. So I wrote a, a book review recently for Palladium uh, on the book The Value of Everything by the economist Mariana Mazzucato. Uh, are you familiar with uh, her with this book at all? Uh, just a bit. I've heard about it. I haven't read it yet. Mm -hmm. So one of the interesting things that's relevant here that is discussed in the book is, uh, you know, lo looking at this idea of who is funding innovation and on what timescales. And I thought one of the interesting challenges that was raised there is that market discipline, like basically the ends to which the discipline is directed, don't always seem to be congruent with what we're thinking of here as the important risks and steps of progress. Uh, and, and this is especially the case when it comes to high risk, high reward research. Um, so what we're seeing, uh, and, and this is especially true with the route that the financial sector has taken, but also with you know uh, publicly traded companies, uh, sh the, the shareholder capitalism model, where we're working on a very disciplined cycle of, of business quarters, um, it becomes very hard to do things long term. Uh, but the financial element was extremely important here. And so a lot of these bigger companies that should have resources to fund uh, the kinds of research we're talking about seem not to do it. And it's it, it it's they're subject to the discipline of a very short term system. But 
what we're even seeing is companies that used to be engaged in in hard production, so to speak, going into things like the financial sector. And so the the examples that stuck with me are for Ford, for example, um, in the 2000s, you were seeing loans for cars and the the revenues being derived from things like interest on loans outpacing actual cars being sold. Uh, and General Electric, likewise, their uh, GE Capital, which is their financial division, was uh, generating some of the highest revenues in that company, and their share of revenues being generated was getting bigger and bigger. Um, likewise, you know, we've we've seen a lot of public investment fall off. Uh, we, you know, there's the National Institutes of Health. If you look at how funding is allocated there, there are a lot of problems with it. Um, it tends to favor very established people in in the medical field. Um, we can, I, I think, the exception currently seems to be in AI. So, if you look at DARPA and the White House, um, directives being given there are actually embracing finally uh, a kind of higher risk approach. You know, l l let's do some experimental stuff in the AI field. But it it doesn't seem to be the case necessarily that the market is giving us innovation. The market seems to be giving us this tool where we can take an innovation and figure out how best to apply it and experiment and, you know, re refine what is being created. But I, I think uh, that public component of high-risk research is something that's been overlooked. And I know Tyler Cowen has recently been talking about kind of this notion of state capacity libertarianism, I think he's calling it, but acknowledging that there's this kind of more complex relationship between uh, public and private sector and where innovation is coming from. Uh, I just like to hear if you have any thoughts on uh, that so far. Um, yeah, so uh, the uh, so first off, um, a comment on you know business and business being short term. I think uh, that is certainly there's certainly something you hear. I don't know. Uh, I don't have an opinion myself on sort of how true that is. Um, but let's just grant for the moment maybe that that it is true that sort of businesses, especially public companies, are run very quarter to quarter. Um, it's like hard to get anything done on a very long term uh, time scale. It certainly does seem to be the exception rather than the rule that kind of businesses are thinking and investing very long term. Um, like I think that's an interesting institutional challenge for companies uh, to ask themselves and, and for us to look at uh, corporations and public stock markets and so forth and to ask, like, what are the forces that are driving this short-term uh, behavior? Like, it, like, it doesn't have to be this way, right? Or at least let's not assume that it has to be this way. Um, there's, in fact, an effort right now, I don't know if you've heard about this, uh, but um, Eric Ries of Lean Startup fame uh, has spent the last, I think it's almost a decade now, creating a new stock exchange, which is literally called the Long-Term Stock Exchange. And, uh, you know, his goal oh, is... Interesting. I'm not familiar with this. His goal is to come up with, um, you know, re really to, to come up with new, um, in a sense, maybe corporate governance mechanisms uh, to uh, help companies think longer term, right? And so, uh, you know, the, the, they haven't um, uh, published anything on kind of like exactly how they're going to do this, but you can imagine all sorts of, uh, you know, mechanisms that this might happen, like, um, you know, maybe even just can we give more... Uh, control to uh, investors with a longer term view or investors who have held on to the stock longer or agreed to, to do so. Um, 
you know, but you can you can imagine starting to look at it from a systems design perspective, from a from an institution design perspective, and and kind of look at those mechanisms and start to counteract them. So, um, you know, on the flip side, if you want to say, actually, nope, this stuff needs to get done uh, from uh, through uh, nonprofit, through government, and so forth, then I would just challenge you to, uh, you know, I, I would challenge people who want to go down that path to say. Um, all right, and now how are you going to deal with all of the kind of known institutional, um, you know, problems that that runs into, right? People who are driven, uh, you know, maybe more by power and prestige than by actually, you know, creating long-run progress, right? Um, cabals that establish themselves and kind of have, an, you know, put an orthodoxy in place, um, uh, especially when funding runs through government, right? Like, again, it tends to get centralized and centralization tends to kind of reduce uh, the, the, the range and diversity and variance of ideas that are getting tried. And that tends to, uh, you know, cut out some of the ideas that are actually super promising, but that at the time, uh, you know, go against that orthodoxy or look like, or they just look like dumb ideas, right? Which is a lot of, um, you know, a lot of how, uh, you see this pattern over and over in history, right? When we solved the longitude problem of, uh, you know, ships finding their way at sea, uh, everybody kind of assumed, maybe not everybody, but there was this general idea, you know, that we, it was going to be an astronomical solution. And in fact, uh, and people were working hard on astronomical solutions. And then this guy came along and he just built a better clock. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, those are, those are the kinds of things that just break patterns that people are used to, right? Somebody just looked in a completely different place, um, you know, than anyone had looked before. And so uh, I would like challenge both sides. I would actually, I would love to get together people with different ideological biases. Let's get all the people who um, uh, have a, a strong ideological bias for uh, free market solutions and capitalism and, and uh, private companies and get them to solve the problem of why, uh, you know, companies are short term. And let's get all the people who want to do it through government or nonprofit and get them to solve, you know, the, the, the institutional problems that that has. And, uh, you know, let's just let's just compete. Yeah, see what see what comes out. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that the I think the coalitions we would see emerge from something like that would actually be quite they would confound the dichotomy quite seriously. My personal view is actually that uh, state and market is not the basic division here. Um, we've seen states that are able to innovate and states which are very bad at it. And we've seen markets produce companies that are great at innovation and companies that are really bad at it. And I think that there's very likely institutional similarities that matter more between the high innovation states and companies versus low, the low innovation ones. Um, I, you know, I, I used to work, uh, drawing a personal experience here, I used to look at medical technologies um, uh, in when I was working as a market analyst. And something interesting that I saw there was that, you know, you had a lot of these startups working on cool stuff. And for each of them, the dream was to be acquired by one of the, the huge centralized multinationals, uh, because those companies at the end of the day had the resources to back the cool proof of concept thing that they were putting forward and really let them bring it to fruition. And I think that both companies and states have used markets like this, right? The, the risk has to be taken, and that requires kind of a centralized organization. Sometimes it's a state, sometimes it's a company that can bear the risk. And then once a new technology of some kind 
uh, has been created, you know, with, with CPUs, with transistors, then the market starts letting you do the slightly lower risk implementation and finessing uh, of what it looks like and directing, you know, uh, here's the best way to use it in a way that is valuable to people that they'll pay for. And I think that this collaboration where you start looking at centralization and markets as tools uh, is is probably, you know, when I talk to people uh, in, in the technology scene here in Toronto, where I am and in the Bay Area and elsewhere, that, that seems to be how people are thinking about it now. Um, I think that there's kind of been a lag time for a lot of intellectual discussion to catch up with that. I'd uh, like to bring in, actually, um, you know, we were talking about uh, before the show, uh, progress studies, governance, futurism. And since we're talking about this uh, more in institutional thing, I, I think it would be useful um, to delve into some of the similarities and differences here. And I see a very strong aesthetic similarity, I think. Like, there are these groundbreaking things that we have done in the past that either we don't seem to be able to do anymore or we don't understand why they're important anymore, and we have to revive that. Uh, I think that, as you've mentioned, you're, you're looking kind of at this this arc, this phenomenon of progress, and the, these different social technological ways in which it manifests. Um, if, if I had to look at the governance futurism concept and the way that at Palladium we've used it and we've used it as a mode of analysis, I think we're basically very structural in how we're thinking about these things, um, looking at questions like centralization, decentralization. Uh, and I, I, I think this discussion has been interesting for me because uh, I, I, I think that with structural analysis, right, it's something that can, we can very easily get bogged down in. There, there are narratives around any of these structures. Um, I guess what I would like to see with you is who do you think, so we have, we have this burgeoning progress studies nexus. Where are you looking for inspiration or for work that might've already been done? Who are your guiding influences here? So as I said, I am approaching this very much in a, in a bottom up kind of way. I've actually uh, deliberately avoided reading too many of the kind of, uh, you know, big picture or theory uh, types of books, because I actually want to give myself a better grounding in the history. Again, the what happened before I start, you know, sort of considering too many theories of why. I think otherwise you get uh, just very caught up in abstract ideas. Um, you get a little detached from sort of reality on the ground. And I'm trying not to do that. Um, I have certainly, you know, from a theory perspective, um, I have enjoyed uh, Steven Pinker's books. Uh, I enjoyed uh, David Deutsch's book, The Beginning of Infinity, which is, um, which really didn't say anything about economics uh, per se, but it says, uh, but it says a lot about epistemology, epistemology and about the concept of progress. Um, I, uh, I enjoyed Joel Makir's book, A Culture of Growth, which was really about the idea of progress and how, uh, how it evolved and how it's actually a new, relatively new thing in history um, and kind of shows how 
the, the, the West came around to the idea of progress, came to believe in progress, came to want to uh, create progress, uh, roughly in the period between Columbus and Newton, so say 15 and 1600s. And he kind of details how that went through, and he gives a lot of credit to Francis Bacon. Um, so I think that was that was enlightening. There's a bunch of other books I'm really interested in reading. Um, uh, Robert Gordon's material uh, and uh, some of Tyler Cowen's stuff relating to stagnation. Um, I want to uh, sort of steep myself in all those those arguments and uh, come to a conclusion. Um, you mentioned uh, what was this book that just came out, Value of Everything. Uh, there was another one somebody mentioned in the Progress Studies Slack group uh, that just came out by an author named Volrath, I think, uh, titled something like Fully Grown, arguing that a, a slowdown in growth, uh, a bit of stagnation, is actually natural once you hit a certain level of uh, prosperity because people's uh, preferences change for uh, consumption mm. versus investment. That's how I understand the, the basic It's like argument. a diminishing returns phenomenon. Yeah, um, I'm very interested in digging into uh, the Deirdre McCluskey trilogy. Uh, the um, uh, what's it called? Uh, I'm blanking on it, but her, you know, her notion of the uh, uh, how the culture uh, around work changed, um, uh, and uh, you know, cultural ideas. Um, I place uh, I place a lot of, uh, of of weight on cultural ideas, on what people think is mm -hmm. good, on what people think is desirable on sort of how they see themselves in the world. I think those things actually have a big influence. Um, anyway, so the, those are some things I'm interested to, uh, to dive into, but, but, but there's more that I haven't read than that I have. The, the, the bottom-up approach, what uh, it, it lets you do, because you've been discussing uh, these moments of progress, moments of innovation and so on, and when you look at individuals and how they achieved something, I think there's something very important there. And, and when it comes to um, the, the mindset of, of governance futurism, uh, and you know we discussed this a bit before the show, but I think an important aspect of governance futurism, uh, the reason that we use that term is because, uh, especially in the Bay Area ecosystem, what it connotes is this willingness to radical change or to rethink how things are being done. And in any instance of technological innovation, of political innovation, what you're often getting are people or organizations that find themselves or cause directly that kind of shakeup, and then they have to find out ways to adapt. And so I, I think that one of the important things that's being done right now is, you know, for various reasons, we're going through the shakeup of uh, political norms, especially, but also social norms, cultural norms. And so there's a, a big battle to figure out, like, if we want to take the energies that exist right now and use them responsibly, how do we do that? There's a, uh, we, we don't, you know, the our institutions are getting shaken up in a lot of ways, but it's been such a long time since we've had to create new ones, right? Bare minimum, we have this post-war American order that's economic, that's political, that's cultural. And it's updated, but it hasn't significantly been challenged since that period. Uh, and I think that an important thing here is going to be taking people, and especially, you know, decision-makers, 
uh, younger people who will be in the position to impact society in a serious way and give them the conceptual framework to use that power responsibly. Um, you know, one of the things Wolf Tyve, who's one of our editors, has written about is this concept of power and how, you know, there's this tie between power and innovation uh, where if you have power, and this can be economic or political power, uh, those often go together, obviously, um, you're kind of in a position where you're going to be helping to determine uh, the course of what this looks like. Um, and in the toolbox of governance futurism, I think is in a way intended to make force people to think about power responsibly and be very explicit about the position that they find themselves in. Uh, I, I'd be interested to hear in like, do you see your audience as very similar uh, or, or, or is the audience something that maybe is uh, in formation for you? <laughs> yeah. It's funny, um, you know, when I when I began this project, when I began the blog, uh, the Roots of Progress, it was a it was totally a personal project. It was really just my notes on what I was reading. Um, it had an extremely small audience of just my friends, and I pretty much didn't care at the at the time about growing the audience. And uh, I felt maybe a I had uh, some time. Uh, I felt this was almost a, you know, this was a, it was a 10, 20 year, maybe a lifelong project to understand the story of human progress. And now uh, here, less than three years later, it's kind of burst into uh, a, well, a full-time thing for me, but also a whole discussion and, and, and everything that people are having. And so, you know, while I was kind of going very maybe uh, leisurely and, and step-by-step bottom-up wondering about things like um, what exactly is steel and how do we make it? People are coming along, and of course, what everybody wants to ask me is, so how do you define progress, and what causes it, and what changes do we need to make today? And uh, and and so all of a sudden, I'm being asked to have a you know a uh, a grand unified theory of progress, which of course I don't I don't have. Um, I, I agree that the the modern world and the current political situation um, you know lend some urgency to this uh, to this effort, and perhaps what I will find is that. I actually need to, um, you know, accelerate my timeline of kind of like how fast am I going to get to some of those biggest, bigger uh, picture ideas um, while still staying grounded. I think my audience and the um, and the, uh, the the sort of progress community uh, overall is it's a combination of folks. Some people are uh, more intellectually interested; they just think this stuff is cool. Uh, they have a kind of geeky intellectual interest in learning, and this is a cool thing to learn about. It's uh, it's technology, it's history, it's um, and so there's there's a lot of that. People who just kind of want to learn how the world works and maybe sense at least that this is really important uh, topic to how the world works and to and to people's actual um, you know lives and uh, and then there's another set of people who I think are feel uh, at least that they are a little further along in their understanding and maybe have some sense of what needs to be done. And so they are more ready to talk about action plans and programs and, you know, how do we go forward? Um, I also think there's a certain component to it of just um, this is a certain worldview and a certain set of values. Uh, it's a certain uh, it, it's a certain view of who are we as a species and you know what is our place in the world what is life like for us 
Um, and it's a very optimistic uh, worldview that's actually full of human agency, right? It says that we can understand the world, that we can make things better, that we can, do, you know, just look at how far we've come. And so I think there's a, a certain, um, you know, kind of moral and cultural atmosphere to it. And part of what the community is seeking is actually that. Let's just be around people and discuss people who, uh, you know, share some of these kind of fundamental uh, ideas, some of this fundamental worldview. Um, yeah, I think the optimism uh, aspect there is extremely important. And it's something that we've discussed on Palladium quite extensively, I would say. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, uh, from a range of pessimistic to straight up dystopian uh, thinking out there. And sometimes it's not even fully conscious. But that sort of thinking lends itself to uh, a, a very rapid form of decline if it exacerbates itself too much. The thing I like to, you know, compare with here, um, we see the collapse of the Western Roman Empire as one of these things. It's like, you know, oh, the, the, this is a clear sign of, of of civilization and progress or, you know, whatever one wants to call this thing, just, just disappearing, just disintegrating. But actually, if you look at the day-to-day -day experience of people living, you know, in, in those, those centuries, especially, you know, like 500, 600s, when the empire that we think of as the proper Roman empire was just gone as a polity, uh, you know, and, and they had returned to very city-based living, wall defenses, etc., stuff that we would recognize as feudal. But for them, that was not something that happened in the course of a few years, Right, it was over generations, and you can read letters from this time period where the things they're talking about are like, uh, "Oh, the roads are safe this year. Um, the, the the crops are doing well." They don't think right. of themselves, and, and objectively, we know like, "Oh, GDP is decreasing, etc." But that's not their mental experience, and and that is one of the biggest collapses that we think about. And so, when when we actually have people on a mass scale experiencing or at least thinking that they're experiencing collapse scenarios or dystopia i i think that you're actually much further along a dangerous road than 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 what than we're we're keen to realize uh, I, I guess so uh do you do you see part of your work as like trying to break through that wall or is it something we're just gonna have to deal with yeah, well, I do think that an important part of so so maybe the you know maybe the what we can talk about here is the relationship of of what I see progress studies as to this governance futurism uh, project. I think a a key part of it, um, you know, a key a key thing that uh, Jonah uh, explained in his article was like, look, we're going to um, take a look at this uh, what you know what he calls the liberal synthesis, and we maybe need to sort of repair it, fix it, upgrade it. You know, come up with a new version of it that works better and fits um, the modern yeah, world. Yeah, the the up. The, I think upgrade is the the key word there. Uh, you know, take take what works and scale up and fix what seemed to be fracturing or not working properly. And, and so there's okay. So there's a couple of aspects of that that relate directly, I would say, to progress studies. So one is, if you want to take what works, you have to understand well what what it what works. What is it that works? And you have to be able to identify that very clearly. Um, and you have to be able to identify why did it work, and if any part of it stopped working, why was that? Uh, and so I think uh, looking at, okay, how far we've come and how did we get here 
what were the things that got us here? Like, let's, let's identify those as some of the good things. And at least let's start from a default view that we should keep them, right? Because, because they were so successful. Um, but the other part of it is, there's this, this, this no, Palladium's view of governance futurism uh, is, a, uh, is an evolution, not a revolution, right? It's not, hey, let's take the modern world order and burn it to the ground and replace it with right. something completely different, right? It's actually this acknowledgement, no, 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 no. The, the modern world order works pretty well. And if it's got some problems, you know, we're, um, we're, we're, I, I like to think of uh, uh, a division. There's always a division between reformists and abolitionists, right? With any system, right? This kind of, mm-hmm. you can, you can look at a system and you can, if you agree, if you, if, if, a, if a bunch of people agree or acknowledge that a system has problems, right? There are some people who fundamentally kind of agree and sympathize with the system and, uh, and just want to change it. Uh, and those are the reformists, right? And then there are others who maybe are ideologically opposed to the system, see something fundamentally rotten about it, and they want to abolish it. So if we want to be reformists with regard to the modern world and not abolitionists, uh, then uh, again, we need this concept that actually the modern world has worked pretty well. And in fact, look at everything that we've achieved uh, you know, through these, these fundamental institutions and ideas over the last few hundred years. I think this was part of the motivation for Pinker's book for Enlightenment Now, right? He said, look, we need to, if we're not going to just, just burn everything to the ground and kind of start over, if we're not going to have some populist revolt uh, and, and, and overturn all of uh, the institutions of society, like we need to, uh, like the way to avoid that is to have this understanding that actually those institutions have worked pretty well. And unfortunately, it's just not the popular understanding. So I think a, a, a problem mm-hmm. with the modern world is that people don't appreciate progress. I, I appreciate is even too strong. They don't even, they don't even, they're not even aware of how much progress has happened. They don't believe it. Sometimes they don't believe it if you tell them, if you show them the numbers, if you show them the data, if you tell them the stories, right, they'll fight against it. Um, and certainly even people who aren't maybe ideologically, ideologically opposed to the idea of progress, uh, they, they're completely ignorant of it, right? If you poll people, uh, Hans Rolting at Gapminder has sort of, uh, has some stuff on this. If you, if you poll people and you ask them, well, like, do you think global poverty has gotten better or worse in the last however many decades you want, right? Like a, a good number of people, I think the majority will actually say, oh, it's, it's certainly gotten worse, right? There's more people. Right. When it's gone the other and way. The reality is the ag is, is the exact opposite, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, people are going on this view of the world and of history, uh, his, uh, sort of modern history that is just actually just false, actually just based on misconceptions, on mistakes, on falsehoods. And so I think, um, you know, these are kind of the two maybe key themes or goals of progress studies. One is just like culturally, let's kind of tell the proper story of progress, sing its praises, give it what it's due, and help people appreciate it. And then on a more intellectual level, um, let's analyze it, let's figure out where it came from, and let's use that to inform our ideas of maybe what we're going to keep and what we're going to reform. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the, the the thing that I might uh, not correct but reemphasize there, a mistake I don't want to make is seeing the problems that exist now as kind of these ephemeral bumps on a on a basically good road. I think that can lead to too much complacency. What's important is that when a crisis breaks out in a structure, especially a a big social structure like the liberal order is, um, that doesn't write off the things that that order did which worked, which filled certain niches. And just because it is unable to deal with one set of problems 
doesn't mean that it's not still dealing with another set of problems, right? Uh, there's this uh, concept of Chesterton's fence where it's like, y yep. you sometimes don't realize the problems that a thing is solving at the time. And so uh, I, uh, you know, even the problem with just tearing something down wholesale is that you'll probably realize it was solving a bunch of problems that you don't even know about, uh, much less of any capacity to solve by yourself. But that being said, uh, when it comes to things like, um, you know, how, how wealth is uh, created, how innovation goes forward, how you manage the kinds of like very socially complex societies uh, that we have now, um, when your prerequisites gear you towards a certain individualism. Uh, I, I think those are problems that come out of a structure. And so the reason that upgrade is the correct way of thinking about it is that you want to understand what problems have already been solved, but uh, you don't want to take it for granted that problems will be solved in future. Because if we look at the past, and the past 200 years even, um, moments like the you know World War One, World War Two, uh, or or even before that, right throughout the Industrial Revolution, it was very unclear how things would turn out, and a lot of problems that seem very obviously solved to us now uh, were not solved then, right? And and so you had you, you were dealing with. Um, Thing, things like industrial poverty that seem to be putting the society on the brink of revolution, right? When when people were seeing Bolsheviks running around Russia, and this was like an imminent threat in their mind. And it's not just the case that, you know, things just worked out fine. There were actually a lot of people and organizations and institutions that did a lot of legwork in order to upgrade and shore up what was necessary. And... You know, I I think that yeah, with with governance futurism, the fundamental optimism is that it is actually possible to solve problems. Like it's possible to take talented people, and you know, th there is not just collapse or apathy. You can actually build very great things, and you know, manage and develop the forces that we're talking about here as progress. And I think that's going to be immensely important. Um, so, Jason, I know we've been talking here a while. Um, just in terms of wrapping up, uh, is there uh, any any project or any venture that you want to talk about before we wrap things up? And then maybe just uh, plug the blog and where people can get in contact with you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think the whole uh, progress study is uh, a concept. Um, the progress community or movement is still very new. It's still being formed, and so I think it's kind of an exciting time where uh, a bunch of people have just come together, but we don't yet have maybe um, structures, institutions, and so forth. Um, that, and so it's, I, I would just encourage anybody who's interested in this concept, interested in human progress, and maybe this, uh, this idea of studying it very, uh, very thoughtfully and very carefully, but also coming into it with a very strong optimism uh, for the future and for what people can do and, and, and for the idea that we can solve our problems. Uh, I would encourage anybody that that resonates with to get involved, um, check out the Roots of Progress, uh, join the Slack group, 
there are meetups in many cities and uh, there are going to be, I'm, I'm sure there's just going to be even more. Um, I'm going to try to make sure there are regular meetups in the San Francisco Bay, Bay Area uh, this year monthly. So um, yeah, sign on to the Slack. Uh, check out the Roots of Progress is at uh, rootsofprogress.org. And there are lots of different ways to follow it. Um, RSS, email, Twitter, Facebook, uh, whatever you like. There's a Reddit group as well. Um, and uh, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is just Jason Crawford, and that's where I post uh, you know, pretty much all my stuff. All right, uh, Jason Crawford, thanks again for your time. Uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you.